This is Vintage Broadcasting. The following is a study through the book of Philippians. My name is Frank Goss. I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come. I thank you very much. What are the death benefits for the Christian? Well, we read in Philippians 1, 21 through 26 and get an idea of what Paul describes as the benefits of dying in Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I, I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, if you're a critical thinker and know how to ask the proper questions and examine what you're reading, you'll need to ask, what is Paul talking about here? He moves from speaking about life and Christ and uh, Christ being his life where he says, for me to live is Christ. Would that not explain his incessant joy? Well, for most, it would be a tremendous satisfaction to have a solid reason for living. And I've heard it expressed so often by young men and women beginning their life away from home I don't know what to do with my life. I don't even know why I'm here. Well, Paul had that locked down. In Christ, I live for him. Then, in the same breath, he says, to die is gain. He sees tremendous satisfaction in Christ now on earth while he's breathing. Then, to die, he says, is of greater benefit. He goes on to say that he's actually torn between the two, between life and death. Is there a cognitive dissonance that is being shown? To those who have no clue about God, Christ, or the gospel, it would seem that indeed this is a bit odd. Death is better than life? In whose estimation? Well, Friedrich Nietzsche and the nihilistic ideas he espoused would agree. To him, life was absolutely meaningless. Moral codes were worthless, and in his mind, God was dead. Now, it must be noted that Frederick Nietzsche suffered from deep, deep depression for years and a bipolar disorder. He died in an insane asylum at the age of 56, 57 years. In his mind, death would be better than life. This represents a mental collapse, however, and an extreme spiritual darkness. We simply exist, and it's futile to try to find out what you are to do with your life. This is Darwinian view of existence. This view does not allow for meaning or purpose. Being left alone without God, with no soul, you're left to survive, like any other animal or organism. It's a fight for survival, and it's survival of the fittest. We evolved from some primordial blob and somehow made it this far. So there's really no moral absolutes, and there's no ultimate set of truths. There's no meaning. It's all absurd. Well, Paul found meaning in Christ a living individual he had met on the road to Damascus. In his fellowship with Christ, he found meaning and hope, eternal hope. He found meaning in God, and in God there is life. In death, there is no true hope, just an end. A step into the odela for the lost man. To the Christian, death is a doorway to life. 
So Paul's conversation was continuing on a linear line. He wasn't jumping around and speaking of absurdities. Death opened the door to life in a greater sense, to eternal life. And this is why those who know Christ can confront death, which was brought about by sin itself as a doorway to victory. Paul goes on to say that he was torn between the two, life on earth or departing to be with Christ. Death for us is gain. For Salk, Camus, Nietzsche, Voltaire, and so many other of the Enlightenment thinkers, death is terrifying. It holds no hope and no benefit. Christians may face what we often refer to as hell on earth. Persecution, in other words. We will be hated and persecuted, ridiculed and mocked for the sake of Christ. Billy Joel, a popular pop singer whose time has come and gone, wrote according to his atheistic understanding, I would rather laugh with the sinners than die with the saints, for only the good die young. This is the message the world presents. While we ignore this and we point out that the author is an atheist, could he recognize or know the reality or the benefits of the saints? He sees what he sees and he hears what he hears. Regardless, what he says is offensive in that his voice is global in its effect and his platform is huge. His message is offensive and condescending to the sincere Christian. This is how those without Christ see life. And these snide remarks and social ostracizations are challenging. This is part of following Christ, though. The Christian life offers no appeal to the lost man, no allure. It's not attractive and promising. Sadly, today, the church is trying earnestly to provide that allure, to be accepted, to present all sorts of shiny objects in order to lure the public and convince them that we actually are not that extreme. We're not radicals or hateful. Getting back to what Paul is teaching here, death looms large as a dreadful enemy for mankind, and man will do all that he can do to avoid discussing it, considering it, or preparing for it. To speak of death is to bring in a weighty, weighty subject. For the Christian, it's gain. Even in our suffering, we have a glimpse of heaven, a taste. But beyond death's door, we enter into unbroken, unfettered fellowship with God and Christ. Then we will know. The unbeliever, the scoffer, and the, and the mocker, all he will know of heaven is what he manages to make here on earth. After that, death is a doorway to eternal condemnation and suffering. Eternity has been placed in the heart of all men, so somewhere in the back of a man's mind, he's packed away and suppressed these thoughts. He knows, and he's afraid. He's hoping against hope that his good will outweigh his bad, that somehow he would have earned acceptance before Almighty God. He is hoping his performance will be considered. Still, men fear death like a child fears the dark. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, he shared in in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Death, we ask, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but Christ has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. Sin finds its strength in the law. Well, we've broken the law repeatedly, consistently. But Christ became sin for us. He bore my punishment, and he stood in my place. 
He fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law. And now I'm free from the past infractions and released from the spiritual claims of death. I will live now in a just manner with God. He has declared me to be his child, and my record is cleared of all condemnation. And therefore there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. In the life that I now live, I live free in Christ. Paul was not saying, for me to live as Christ, but to get out of this prison would even be better. His life was given to Christ, and he lived to see Christ glorified and magnified in how he lived. He rejoiced so confidently and with so much joy that his friends in Philippi were prospering. Through them, Christ was being exalted. The gospel was spreading. The good news of salvation was reaching many who sat in darkness for so long. He loved the Philippian people. He loved his brethren. Life, even life behind bars and chains, that was a blessing for Paul. Why? Because he was with Christ. Anxiety is not what we're picking up in his writings. No, what we see is a man who is joyfully writing to his beloved friends. It's not a shallow emotional experience, but rather a deep, mature understanding of what Christianity is all about. But death has benefits, you see. That is what Paul is pointing out to us. Think of that. We will have freedom from evil, and we'll have conformity to the image of Christ. We'll be like him. The worry and the pressures, the challenges that we face daily here on earth, the fear and the doubts, they'll be gone. And we'll have complete, uninterrupted fellowship with Jesus. These things are of a permanent nature. They won't fade away. The lost man may have no desire of these things. He's already established a deep fellowship with his own sin and his own pleasure. He finds his satisfaction within himself. I spoke with a young man one time who was in college, and I asked him what he thought of Christ. He said in a matter-of-fact fashion, I have no need for that. So he finds his satisfaction from another source. I would like to say that we are not truly satisfied, but honestly, I can't speak to that. Personally, I cannot imagine satisfaction apart from Christ. But evil has a way of suppressing truth and emotions. There are those who live with no regrets and no God. Regardless, the facts apply when it comes to death. Eternal life for those in Christ and eternal death for those outside of Christ. I was living a raucous and a riotous life and I had no concerns about God prior to my conversion. I was having fun, experiencing trouble, and living life on my terms, for sure. I felt no reservations outside of what the law had permitted. It was not until I heard the gospel that my interest was picked. In verse 23 here, Paul says that his desire is to depart and to be with Jesus. The Greek word there is translated in English as the word analysis, analuo. It had various uses in the ancient times, sometimes referring to the freeing of a slave and sometimes to the sailing of a ship, sometimes solving a problem, but often in the breaking of a camp by one of the Roman legions. In every instance, it conveyed the idea of leaving something permanently behind. We can see this most clearly in the military operations of the Roman army. When a party of Roman soldiers reached the end of a long day's march, they made camp. And this was, in a literal term, they made a camp. This was no ordinary camp constructed out of a few tents and a few fires. A Roman camp, even when the legion was under oppressed marches, was always an elaborate affair. 
First, a rectangle was paced off large enough to hold the contingent of soldiers. The troops occupied assigned places within the encampment. After the rectangle was paced out, the entire encampment was secured by a moat or a rampart, often to a combined height of 10 or 12 feet. The top was reinforced and the corners were strengthened. After this, the soldiers settled down for rest and their evening meal. In the morning, the camp was struck and the soldiers moved on. Behind lay the camp with all of its fortifications like a discarded chrysalis, mute testimony to the fact that they had been there. Paul suggests in a similar way Christians can break camp to be with Jesus. All that is not useful will will stay behind. All of the sin, all of the pain, all of the care and the anguish of this world. In death, there is a great freedom. It is to convey such a peaceful freedom that the Bible also speaks of death as sleep. Stop and think of this for a moment. When you sleep, what bothers you? Stephen is said to have fallen asleep when his earthly life was brought to an end in Acts 7, verse 60, when he got stoned. Christ spoke of Lazarus having fallen asleep in John 11. Paul wrote many times of the sleep of the believers. We who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, we certainly will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In Thessalonians chapter 4, listen, I tell you a mystery, he said. We won't all sleep, but we will all be changed. Said that to the Corinthians. Some people have taken reference to sleep literally, and they've invented a strange doctrine called soul sleep, teaching that the believer sleeps in an unconscious state between the moment of his death and the resurrection of the body at Jesus Christ's return. Now, you can read your Bible all the way through multiple times, but you won't find this being taught, not in the Bible, but in the imagination of man. Jesus taught that his reference to sleep was figurative, And there are verses that teach an immediate passage of the Christian into the presence of God at death. We cannot say for me to live is Christ and to soul sleep is gain. Or to be absent from the body is soul sleep. There's no image used in scripture to teach that. It's used to teach that in death, as to a lesser degree in physical sleep, You are absolutely free of the cares of the trouble of this life, even if for a few short hours as you rest. And you're a partaker of the peace that has an heavenly origin. To be like Jesus is the second great benefit of death to the believer. They're going to be like Jesus, and this is the thrill. John writes, Dear friend, we're children of God, and what we will be hadn't been revealed to yet, hadn't been known yet. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him, and we'll see him as he is. That's in John, 1 John 3, verse 2. It's not enough to say that death brings freedom from evil. That's true, it does. But that's a negative thing. Total annihilation would be just as effective as these guys are describing it. But death is better than that. Surprisingly, several noted theologians have taken on the idea of total annihilation for the sinner. And that's shocking. The Bible teaches that death brings a final perfection for the sanctification of the believer that has begun on earth. Eternal death brings for the unbeliever a life that will pass in the flames of the lake of fire for eternity. For the Christian, when we die, we shall be like him. That means we will be like him in righteousness. 
For Paul speaks of the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. The thought is almost breathtaking. We, you and I, will be crowned with righteousness. A righteousness that is not our own, but one that is given and provided. We don't know that righteousness right now. We've only tasted it slightly. But the day is going to come when we shall be what we should be. And the things that are not now, nor could be, then shall be our own. We're going to be like him also in knowledge. Now, right now, we can look as hard as we can, but we only see through a glass dimly. We know in part, and our knowledge, even of spiritual things, is always mixed with error. We think we know perfectly, but we don't. In that day, we shall. We'll know God as God knows us. And all that has puzzled us in this life will become clear. In the same way, we have a sense of things right now as we study the general outlines of the Bible. And we seek to understand. But the day is coming when God's light will shine upon all of these pages that we have in our Bible. And we're going to see all of history and all of the reality as God sees them. If Paul had been living in our day, he might have used this image instead of the imperfect mirror in 1 Corinthians 13. But the teaching is the exact same. He says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But then we're going to see him face to face. And now I know in part, but then I'm going to know fully, even as I am fully known. We shall also be like Christ in our love. I love my wife. I love my children. I have five. I have three daughters and two sons. There's so much love within me for them that at times it's hard to contain, really. But also there are times when I have abused their trust and I've not loved them as I should. But Christ's love was selfless and self-sacrificing. It was continual and without fault, without interruption. It was a love that reached to us when we were rotten sinners and it saved us for this life now and for eternity. We can sing with great truthfulness, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and it reaches to the lowest hell. Now how wonderful that God's love stooped low enough to reach me. And that his love will carry me beyond the highest star into his very presence. What a picture. What a picture. It's the picture of the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven that astounds us. The city is portrayed as a huge cube surrounded by a wall. And on, on each of the four sides, there's three gates named after each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The city is filled with precious jewels and the streets, they're paved with gold. The whole is lit by the radiance of God and the Lamb who dwell within it. Sometimes you think of these things and it's hard to picture this. The picture of a large golden cube descending from heaven just doesn't seem right, does it? It almost seems pointless to those who look at it without any understanding. But as you study, you'll come to see that this is the new Jerusalem, and it's a picture of the church, Christ's bride, and she will be in all her God-given perfection. It's far more wonderful, of course. This is exactly what John says. One of the seven, one of the seven angels came and said to me, Come, and I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, 
as it came down out of heaven from God. Revelation 21, 9 through 10. What a picture. The dimensions of the city are meant to symbolize perfection. Gold, it always symbolizes purity. The jewels, they symbolize the fact that the church is precious. The most glorious truth is that you and I will help to constitute that city in the day of our death. When we are made like Jesus, we're going to be with him. The illustration of the heavenly Jerusalem has already anticipated the third benefit that comes to the believer. We're going to be in heaven with Jesus. If that doesn't thrill you, then something's amiss. Now we know him, and we know that he's with us in this life. And we can trust in the fact that he'll be perfectly close to us in death. For we're told that God is our refuge and strength and an ever-present help in a time of trouble. And he goes on to say, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. But the day is coming when we shall be with him as never before, as the bride is with her husband on the evening of their marriage. In that day there will be no tears, no unfulfilled longings or disappointments, and no separation, no doubts. Death is always a separation, even for the Christian. The sad thing about death is that my family will be left here, and there will be a separation made. For the unbeliever, however, death is the separation of the soul and the spirit from God. For the Christian, death is the separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. But there is one respect in which death is no separation at all for those who trust in Christ. There is no separation from Jesus. He goes with us through the door. Even for Paul, the dilemma he stood in wasn't a dilemma between Christ and not Christ. It was a dilemma between Christ and Christ, Christ and Christ, Christ by faith and Christ by sight. It was a dilemma of him leaving the Philippians and those that he loved here on this earth, those he wanted to help and to care for, those whom he loved. But it was resolved ultimately only by a perfect union with Christ. You and I can look forward to that union, but we must live for others now. It is true that death holds certain benefits for all believers, the freedom from evil and the likeness to Christ and our union with him, but it was never intended to make a Christian flee from the duties of this life, as some have. The monasteries that are created in the hills of Switzerland and in the, the dryness of the desert, they, they separate themselves from the world, but Christ does not say that. We're told that we're in the world, but we're not of it. Have you ever noticed that practical considerations always follow the mention of this subject in Scripture? John argues that everyone who has this hope within him purifies himself, just as he, Christ, is pure. The great chapter on the resurrection, which is found in 1 Corinthians 15, closes with these words. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. It's the same in the opening chapter of the Philippians. No sooner has Paul said that death is gain then he turns back once more to those who are still in his charge. In a few words, he acknowledges that if in God's wisdom he remains in this life, 
then that means more work, more help for others. He says, convinced of this, I know that I'll remain. And I will continue with all of you and for your progress and for your joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. I'll be able to help you and to show you and to teach you. So it must be with us. We must lift our heads to contemplate the joys of heaven. But if we see them rightly, we'll turn back once more to those for whom our life in Christ and our witness to him are needful. God loved others, and so should we. We thank you very much for following along in our study on Philippians, and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated, and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.